We'll open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. And Jesse read for us this morning the three verses that we're going to be looking at, but it is actually part of a larger section that goes all the way down to verse 8. And verses 1 through 8 is part of a section that goes all the way to the end of chapter 4. And As we turn to this new chapter this morning, you're going to find out pretty quickly that the topic is not new at all, because the theme of the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans, is the gospel of God's righteousness. And since it's been a while since we've looked at this, let me just remind you briefly of the outline of the the book, so you don't get lost in in the weeds, you see the big picture. The book of Romans has eight parts, at least that's the way we're breaking it down. There was Paul's introduction to the gospel. Then there was this long period of, of, uh, of text that we worked through that identified mankind's universal need for the gospel. That was the dungeon that we went in. Then there's the exclusive solution that's found in the gospel. That's the section that we're in right now. And then after that, what awaits us is a believer's assurance because of the gospel, the defense of the gospel related to Israel, the transforming power of the gospel in in life. That's the passage that turns with, Therefore, um, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, the way you've probably memorized it like me. Then there's the example, Paul's example of preaching the gospel in chapter 15. And finally, there's praise, there's doxology for, for the gospel in, in chapter 16. As I said, we're still in chapter 3 where, where Paul is laying out the, the exclusive solution for mankind that God provides in the gospel. And, and as part of his argument, he's now going to turn to the Old Testament for evidence that, that will corroborate his, his message that, that he's, he's been laying out. And, and as he does, he, he'll show us that the Old Testament as well teaches a gospel by faith alone. That's how God has always saved sinners. Adam was saved by faith alone. Abel was saved by faith alone. Noah was saved by faith alone. Abraham was saved by faith alone, as was Moses and David and Solomon and Job and Isaiah and anybody else that you can think of from your Hebrew Bibles. In Romans chapter 3, verse 21, Paul turns the corner from this two and a half chapters of condemnation that that proved everyone, both Jew and Gentile, needed the gospel. And so, after that long, detailed look at human sin, Paul, in verse 21 of chapter 3, declares this glorious hope that, that comes to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and he presented the gospel. It's like the, it's like the car comes to a complete stop, and he presents the gospel in this crystalline form. It's, a, it's righteousness that's provided by God... Um, as a gift, through faith alone, without any mixture of works whatsoever. It's available to all, both Jew and Gentile, and that's what he detailed for us in verses 21 through 26. Then last week, Paul comes right out of that presentation of the gospel and presents some implications, some, 
some, so what does that mean then? Uh, and, he, and he does that in verses uh, 27 through 31 that rounds out chapter 3. Paul laid out the implications of, of a salvation that comes to us this, this way. And we said they're happy repercussions of the gospel. They're applications of, of a gospel by faith alone. That Jesus saves by faith. What, what does a righteousness provided by God through faith alone mean practically? And we saw it means there's no boasting before God because there are no works that can be added to it. It means there's an equal footing for all, both, both Jew and Gentile, because there's only one God, and, and He saves the same way. He saves all the same way. And, and we also saw it means that a law is, the law is fully upheld, because faith alone, salvation in that way, establishes the law. It, doesn't, it does no, no violence to it whatsoever. And, and we said Paul knew all of those arguments very well, because he's already been through his three missionary journeys, and he, he's wanting to continue even beyond that and go to Spain. And, and he's heard those arguments many times when he went in and talked to religious people, moral people, Jewish people, and he preached the gospel. This is the argument that, that, that he would get. But, and you're going to see today that, that he's not done with his explanation or argument. And so beginning in chapter 4, Paul now proves those truths by using the example of, of Old Testament saints as his evidence. I mean, many were listening to the Apostle Paul talking and, and what he was saying, and, and they were thinking, well, yeah, well, but, but what about the Old Testament saints? I mean, okay, maybe, maybe I can accept that God's doing something new right now through Christ, which, which he is, but, but what about the Old Testament saints? I mean, how were they saved? What? What about, what about Noah, who was a preacher of righteousness and who by his works built an ark while the whole world mocked him? And what about him? Isn't it true that, that because of his righteousness, God put him in the ark? And because of Noah's righteousness, that, that he stands justified before God? And, and Paul would say, you mean Noah that, that got drunk right after he landed the boat? And his sons cursed him? His sons were cursed because they looked upon his nakedness, that, that father, Noah. And they said, well, 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 okay, well, what about Moses? I mean, the great giver of the law. I mean, he looked upon the face of God. He, he spoke to God face to face. I mean, surely his deeds counted as part of his righteousness. And, and, and Paul would say, you mean Moses who murdered an Egyptian, who ran away? who broke the tablets that God wrote with his own finger in anger, who directly disobeyed God by striking the rock, and because of that he could not even enter into the, the promised land, that Moses. Um, and so in a last resort, they would say, well, well surely, uh, Father Abraham, our, our great patriarch, the source of the Jewish people, was justified by his works. I mean, he offered up his son as a sacrifice to God. And in chapter 4, Paul responds, and he says Abraham too was saved by faith alone, along with King David and every other Old Testament believer. And as you approach chapter 4, you may have asked a similar question. Maybe you were taught like I was, wrongly, that salvation in the Old Testament was by law, and in New Testament it's by faith, it's by grace. 
Have you ever wondered how the Old Testament saints were saved? I mean, did they come through, through faith in Jesus Christ as well? If so, how is that possible? Or, or as you read the Old Testament and you see the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law and the, the feasts and the sacrifices and how they were commanded to do those things, and, and maybe you ask, did, did, did works play any part in, in an Old Testament saint's salvation? I mean, the law seems like it's pretty important. And since it is, was it, wasn't that part of God's saving work? Well, Paul answered that today in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. You can think of these eight verses as a commentary on what he just got done saying at the end of chapter 3, verses 27 through 28. I mean, at the end of chapter 3, Paul lays out these implications of a gospel by faith alone, and then he proves it in chapter 4 from the Old Testament. I mean, Joel James said that Paul answers the question, how was Abraham saved? When was Abraham saved? When did Abraham receive God's promises? And what was Abraham's faith like? That's a good outline for chapter 4. Look at the clear connections between the implications from last week at the end of chapter 3 and chapter 4. Verse 27 of chapter 3. Where then is boasting? By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by faith. And look at chapter 4, verse 1. What shall we say then that Abraham our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about before God. There's the connection. Boasting is, is excluded, and it was excluded in the Old Testament as well. Verse 27 again, uh, a person is justified by faith, not by the works of the law. And look at verse 3 of Romans 4. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. But to the one who, work, who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Look back at verse 29. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Is that proven in the Old Testament? Yeah, look at verse 9. We'll not get there this morning, but look at verse 9. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say... Faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. And look at the end of verse 11. So that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That righteousness might be credited to them. God's way of salvation has always excluded works. It was always available to all. And the greatest figure in the Bible proves it, and King David comes along in verses 6 through 8 and corroborates exactly what, what Moses teaches in Genesis 15. The structure of verses 1 through 8 is pretty plain. Verse 1 asks the question about how Abraham was saved. Verses 2 through 5 answers it, and then verse 6 through 8, it's corroborated from the, the words of, of David. We'll outline it um, this way. There's justification by faith alone in the Old Testament. Abraham no, has no grounds to boast. He has no works to claim. He was saved by faith alone. He was an ungodly grace receiver. 
not a righteous wage earner, and David's life testifies of this truth. And so there's an Old Testament examination in verses 1 and 2. There's Old Testament evidence in verse 3. There's Old Testament illumination in verses 4 and 5, and an Old Testament explanation in verses 6 through 8. Let's look at the, the first one here. Abraham's salvation is offered as an Old Testament examination. And the question of works is posed in verse 1, and the result of boasting is prohibited with Abraham as well in verse 2. Look at you at verse 1. Paul says, what shall we say then? Uh, what shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but, but not before God. I want you to notice that Paul starts with a question that he knows everyone agrees on. Um, The Jews agreed that Abraham was the ultimate example from the the Old Testament. He he was their forefather. He's our forefather as as well. I mean, you'll even hear unbelievers, secular people say today that the three great religions of the world, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, are all connected by, by Abraham who is the father of all of those three religions. And so it's no mistake that God uses Abraham here to communicate the true way of salvation. And so the Jewish story begins with Abraham. He received the covenant from God and was the one who who was promised land and seed and and, and blessing. And no good law-loving Jew had anything bad to say about Abraham. So that's where Paul goes. In fact, they added quite a few things to Abraham's account. Kent Hughes said the, the Mishnah declares that Abraham performed the whole law before it was ever given. I mean, the Mishnah credits Abraham keeping the entire law of Moses before Moses ever received the law from God, 400 and some years before Moses was ever born. An earlier book, the Jubilees, stated Abraham was perfect in all of his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. So perfect, Hugh said, that in the, the, the book, The Prayer of Manassas, it says Abraham never had need of repentance. Wow. I don't know how anyone can say that and read Genesis 12 through 13. Abraham lying about Sarah to cover his own backside and all the other things that are there. It's beyond me how they do that, but that's what they said. And so Paul says, yeah, yeah, let's look at Abraham and we'll see how he was saved. Well, what did Abraham find concerning salvation? I mean, Paul is asking, does the salvation of Abraham in the Old Testament validate what I just got done saying in chapter 3? Let's put that to the test. That a gospel by faith alone excludes boasting and prohibits more than one way and upholds the law. Let's test that. And then he answers the question with a conditional statement. Look, if you would, at verse 2. Question, Abraham, our forefather, what was his salvation like? Verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something, I'm adding that word, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. It starts with a for. What is coming now in verse 2 is an explanation or answering the question that, that Paul just asked. He says, if Abraham was declared right by, uh, with God on the basis of works, 
then Abraham has a ground for boasting. He has some claim to lay before God. That's Paul's premise. If this is true, then boasting would result. But if it's not, no one can boast before God. And it's not true, because no one can boast before God. Therefore, Paul's conclusion is works are not part of salvation. And he'll go into more detail in verses 4 and 5, but here he just echoes what he just got done saying, using Abraham as a commentary. And by doing so, he lays an axe to the, to the root of a work salvation, even in the Old Testament. I mean, if works has any part of your salvation, then you have something to claim before God. And, and we would recoil at that idea. I mean, how could we even begin to think that we had anything to claim before God? But the Jews in Paul's day wouldn't recoil at that. They would say, you're right. We do have something to claim before God. Our law-keeping, our, our works, our, our obedience, or, or at least our striving to do it. And so does Abraham. That's exactly what they would, they would say. I mean, he left his homeland, he followed God, he, he destroyed his father's idols. Uh, Abraham was a righteous man because of that. I mean, he gets some credit for that. And Paul would say, would say, really? Really? Is that what the Bible says? Well, let's look at actually what it says, and we'll learn from that. Works are posed, boasting is prohibited, and then Paul actually turns to the Old Testament Bible in verse 3. Not just his own statement. So number two, Abraham's faith is an Old Testament evidence that salvation was by was by faith alone. Look, if you would, at verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? What's it say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him or accounted to him as righteousness. You see what Paul does here? He pulls out an inconvenient weapon that theological error always tries to forget about, the Bible. Always remember, any error, any theological error, either adds to the Bible, takes away from the Bible, or twists the Bible in some way. It's Satan's game from the very beginning. And when someone tries to tell you something about God, and as you're listening to them, when, and even they're, they're using the Bible, it feels like you're playing a game of theological twister, you know, run. They say, well, well Genesis 3 says this, and... Proverbs 2 says that, and Romans 1 says that, and, and, and therefore, and they, they link all of these verses together in order to, to prove a point, you know that, that it's time to get out of there. Because 100, Psalm 199 verse 30 says, the entrance of your word brings light. Brings light. When someone uses the Bible rightly, it should feel like you're in the dark and somebody turned the lights on. It should feel like somebody pulling out a flashlight on a, on a dim night. I mean, when you actually sit under the, the preaching of God's Word, the, the, the Word rightly divided, what, you, what should be happening is clarity. Well, that makes sense. I, I understand. That, that's what should be happening. That's, that's what the Spirit does. He illuminates the truth, and the truth then gives you, gives you light. I mean, of course, it's, it's, it motivates us, but that's not the, the, the main purpose. 
main purpose is, is to understand that we might know God and know, know more about Him. And so Paul quotes verbatim from the Old Testament Septuagint here. And he quotes Genesis 15, 6, a verse that every Jew would know or should know. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And Moses and Paul are not saying that, that Abraham's faith was his righteousness. As if faith is some righteous work. Well, Abraham had faith. So that was his work. That, that's what God, that's what God he, uh, said, okay, now you're righteous because you are so faithful. You, you believe me so well. That's not what he's saying. He's saying his faith counted as righteousness because his faith was placed in God's word of, of promise. Let me show you that back in Genesis 15. Why don't you turn back to Genesis 15? I mean, if Paul's going to use Abraham, and we have a copy of the exact passage that he used, it would behoove us to go there and, and see exactly what does it say. Genesis 15. The Old Testament is the bedrock of the Bible. You can't understand the New Testament without understanding the Old. And its major themes are revealed if you look at it from God's vantage point. You remember years ago we preached a series of, called the Foundation Series that laid out Genesis and Exodus from a, from a macro, from a high level, and we always asked three questions. What does this task passage teach me about God? What does this passage teach me about mankind? Because God never changes and human beings are common. And then what does this teach me about redemption? Because the whole Bible is the story of redemption. And the Bible is just like any other book. It has a storyline from beginning to end. And, and as you look at each section rightly, you, you can piece the storyline to, together. And, and in the book of Genesis up to chapter 15, you have all kinds of stuff happening. You have creation... Verses one, uh, chapters 1 and 2 and the fall, which we'll begin looking at tonight. Then you have catastrophe and confusion in uh, chapters 4 through 11. You have the global flood and the Tower of Babel. And then you have the call of Abraham, or the call of Abram, and his journey to the land that God pledges to him in Genesis chapter 4. And you might think uh, uh, of the call of Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis as God setting everything up for the covenant that he makes right here in Genesis 15, which, which Paul uh, calls our mind to. Between the call of Abraham and the covenant of God, God removes some stuff in Abraham's life. There's a threat of a famine, there's an obstacle of, of an heir named Lot, and then there's a, this complication that comes by, by, by way of a, of a rebellion. And all of that just continues the story that God began all the way back in Genesis 1 that he continues all the way through the Bible. From the very beginning of the Bible, God intervenes and makes a gracious promise. In fact, the whole Bible, as I said, is just a story of how God accomplishes that promise. All of the characters of the Bible, from Adam to Abraham to Paul, the events, the history, they're all just a stage for God to put his redemption, his power, his glory on display and God promised a seed to Eve that will come, and, and by him, God would rescue mankind from the consequences of the fall in Genesis 3. And we're told that the, the blessing of Noah 
in chapter 9, the, is going to come through the, the seed, his seed, through the line of Shem. And then in chapter 12 of Genesis, God makes clear exactly who that family is. God's blessing will come through, through Abram, a Shemite, the, the son of Terah, and through his line, the promised seed would, would prevail. And now in, in Genesis 12, everything in the Bible narrows down to this man and his offspring, and, and Abraham will set the trajectory for the whole Bible from that point forward. That's why Abraham is so important. That, that's exactly why the Apostle Paul uses him in Romans 4. Salvation will come from God through the seed of Abraham, and it will be received through the same way that Abraham was, was saved through faith alone, and by that same faith, that same weight of faith, all of mankind will be blessed through the seed that will come through Abraham. And so now you come where, where Paul quotes this passage. Look, look, if you would, at Genesis 15. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house, Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him out and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And then he believed the Lord, here's our verse, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Genesis 15 has two parts. That's the first part, verses 1 through 6. It's all about Abraham's faith, God's declaration of Abraham's righteousness. And then... Verse 7 through 20 through the end is the covenant that God makes. And they're both based on God's promise. In this first scene, you find uh, this description of Abraham's faith that Paul appeals to. You can just feel the flow of the story as I read through. God speaks in, in, in verse 1. Abraham then questions about how he doesn't have an heir in verses 2 and 3. Then... God reaffirms his promise in verses 4 and 5, and then Abraham believes, and God declares on that basis that that is what he'll see as Abraham's righteousness. Look at verse 1 again. Here's God speaking. It said, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear. Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. God made a pledge to, to Abraham that he'll, he would have a promised land, and things are not going the way that Abraham expected. I mean, he would make him a great nation through a great seed, and God would deal with other nations the same way that, 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 that he dealt with Abraham, but Abraham is tested by many obstacles. There was a famine that drives him out of the land that God promised, and God has to rescue him. He's tested by Lot as his only heir, so God separates their families. He, he's tested with a war when uh, the, the kings of the land come and capture his family and, and become a curse to Abraham. This is supposed to be a, a blessed land. <laughs> and, and God's come out of it and take my family. Well, what's going on? 
And in every situation, God redirects him to his original promise. And now he appears in a vision to Abraham to reaffirm his promise. And he tells him, do not fear. I mean, it's kind of an odd statement when you think about it. I know we haven't been in Genesis, but I've tried to orient you. It's an odd statement given that Abraham has just returned in the previous chapter from a rescue operation where he and 318 of his men go charging into an enemy camp, outnumbered, outgunned, and defeat four kings. I mean, Abraham was not a fearful man, was he? He was bold. He left his homeland. He was called to believe God when everybody else was worshiping idols. I mean, that takes guts. But God says, fear not. And he says this because Abraham has not received the promise yet. And waiting will take faith, which is replaced with fear whenever you lack it. I mean, not to mention hearing the Lord speak in a vision is way more fearful than being outmanned by all of the armies of the, of, of the, of the world. It's like the disciples in, in the boat. When there's a storm, they're afraid of the, the storm outside of the boat. And when Jesus says, peace be still, it says they were greatly afraid because they found themselves inside the boat with God. I mean, isn't the temptation that you face the same as Abraham whenever you, you've had to wait on God? God makes a promise. And so you start with great faith. And it, it's even tested in all these different things. But the longer you have to wait for the promise to be fulfilled, the more fear creeps in. You think, I don't want to blame God. I mean, God's able to, to keep His promises. But, but, but what if He didn't hear me? I mean, what if I didn't say something right? What if I didn't pray enough? Uh, uh, what if He doesn't answer because I'm a sinner, because of my sin? Fear begins to creep in. You begin to attach uh, certain caveats to God's promises based on, on you or your lack. And so God says to Abraham and he says to you, do not fear. I do not forget my promises because they're mine and they're based on me. They're not based on how much you pray or if you pray or if you're sinful or if, you, if you're not. You'll never pray enough and you'll never be good enough. And you should remember that God's clock doesn't run the, the, you know, the same speed as yours. Peter told us that. With the Lord, one day is a thousand years. A thousand years is one day. And after telling him not to fear, he reassures Abraham. Look at, look at verse 1 again. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. He says, You do not have to fear. And then he discloses why. Because of my own character. I will be your protection. I'll be your shield. And I'm your source of blessing. I'm the one. I'm the source of this promise. And Abraham obeys the command not to fear, but, but he questions the second statement about God. So here's Abraham's questioning. Look, look at verse 2. Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the, the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Since you have given me no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. I mean, he basically says, What purpose will your blessing be, Lord, if I have no child to transfer it to? 
I mean, what good is all this land if, if nobody's going to get to use it? It's going to die with me. I'm childless. And the only visible option is this, is this servant here. I mean, he's saying, my circumstances contradict your promise, God. The man who's blessed has offspring, and I have none, save this servant of my house. It was a custom, if you didn't have a male heir, that you would adopt one of the servants. And Abraham is saying, that's what I'm looking to do. Plan B. It's tempting to do that too, isn't it? You know God, what God has promised in His Word, but right now your, your circumstances seem to contradict that promise. So you're tempted to adopt a, an Eliezer rather than trust God. You want to opt for plan B. Plan B seems like the, most, the only viable option based on your circumstances, but be careful. Because what starts with a question about how God is going to do something can actually turn into an accusation Verse 3, Abraham said, since you have given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. Notice who Abraham blames. He says, since you have given me no offspring. Abraham begins with a question and then turns to an accusation. What difference will it make God seeing the blessing will die with me? You have given me no offspring. And look at God's response in verse 4. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. You see what God does? God reassures Abram through his original promise. God takes him outside and he shows him the stars. And he says, you won't have to adopt a servant. A real son will receive your inheritance. And not only that, your descendants shall be so many, Abraham, that no one's going to be able to count them. They're going to be like the stars. And he gives him a reminder of who he is and he calls Abraham to believe what he says. I mean, think of the, the imagery that's going on here. I mean, God takes him outside, which means they were inside whenever they were talking. They were in a tent or whatever they were in. And he points his eyes to the black sky and he says, Look up at my canvas. Look toward the heavens. You see those stars? Count them if you're able, which he can't. That's how many descendants I'll bring forth from you, Abraham. He gives him two directives. Look and count. The first reminds, uh, reminded Abraham of God's power. The second reminds Abraham of his own limitation. I mean, God is reminding him of what Abraham said to Melchizedek uh, uh, in the scene before. Genesis 14:22. Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn or raised my hand to the Lord God, uh, most high possessor of of heaven and earth. God is saying, look, Abraham, look at the heavens. Who made them? Who owns them? That's right, I do. I'm able. Abram, that's what he's saying. And anytime you look at a seemingly impossible situation and you're called to believe, you should remember who is making the promise, that he is able. But you also need to be reminded of your own limitations. 
So he doesn't just tell him to look, he tells him to count. Count, Abraham. Go ahead, start. I'm waiting. One, two, three, four. <laughs> you can't, can you, Abraham? No, you can't. I mean, do you really think that there's any other option than trusting the Lord in your unfruitful circumstances, in your contradictory circumstances? I mean, do you really think that if you tried plan B, plan B will work? That if you turn away from trusting God, that you can fix it? We do that too, don't we? We get desperate like Abraham, and we begin to accept Hagar's, and we end up with Ishmael's. We bring consequences that last for a really, really, really long time. They're still lasting today. The limitation of his own ability is placed in direct comparison to God's ability. Look at the stars and count them, Abraham. God is so great that you can't even measure the magnitude of his ability. And then God restates his promise. The end of verse 5. He said to him, So shall your descendants be. That's how your descendants shall be, Abraham. You won't just have one heir through a human custom, leaving you with no real descendant, but by my power, you will have a number no man can even count. Now that is a colossal promise to believe, isn't it? Abraham starts with their, I have no heir to pass the blessing to, I am childless, not even one child. And God responds with, you will have an heir from your own dead body, deadened body, an inability to have children was Abraham's situation, and you'll have descendants that can't be numbered. It's a colossal promise. Any greater promise? Any more colossal than you being a sinner? Where God says, if you'll call upon the name of the Lord and believe Christ in Christ, you can be translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. Look at how Abraham responds. He responds in faith, verse 6. And then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him. That's the Lord. The Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed in Yahweh. Abraham believed in God, and God counted that to Abraham as righteousness or for righteousness. Abraham was called to believe something that only could be accomplished by God based upon who God is, and Abraham believes. The idea here is Abraham believed in God. In response to God's promise, Abraham puts his faith in God's word. And we find out in the New Testament, even that's a gift from the Lord. He puts his trust in Him. And on that basis, God makes a declaration about, about Abraham. He credited, credited that to him as righteousness. There's two ideas here. There's the, the basis upon which God does this act. And the, the second is the act, the, the declaration. It's on the basis of faith. And on that basis, God declares something. A verdict. The word for reckoned him righteous or credited, it's an accounting term. It, it means to, to, to calculate, it, to bring the numbers and the values together and determine their sum, to calculate the weight. And Moses says God calculates and then he renders a verdict in 
In this case, the, the verdict was to be right with God or to be righteous be, before God. I mean, on, on the basis of Abraham's response of faith, God calculated that as a means to gain righteousness. God's reckoning or crediting of Abraham's faith was the, the deciding factor, not his works. It was the basis of his relationship with Abraham. And just to make sure that Abraham gets it and you get it, we won't go there, but in chapter 7 through 20, God has Abraham bring all the pieces together to make a covenant, and then he puts him to sleep to make sure that Abraham knows this covenant is unconditional and you have absolutely nothing to do with your salvation, and then God alone walks between the pieces. But this accounting concept is not hard to understand. You get it today. Joel James used the analogy of like if you're sitting here as a church member and when you leave, let's say you... You write a check out and you put it in the box whenever you, you leave and, and you write in the little memo line of that check. It's for the, the TFM fund, Training Faithful Men. And that check is gathered and it's carried over and put in the, the safe and all of that. And when the accountants get it, they, they take that and the church accountant then credits that that money to the TFM line. It says this money belongs in that line. And so the check is credited to that fund's account. And the Bible says here that that's what God does with righteousness, not money. God sees your faith and then credits the righteousness of Christ into your account. He credits that to your ledger. And prior to that moment, Abraham... Abraham's fund had nothing in it. It, it, but after God's reckoning, it had the full righteousness of Christ, even though Abraham earned nothing on his own. And, and of course, we saw in Romans, it's even worse than that for us, because as human beings, we don't start with a zero balance. We have an eternal debt. Our own righteousness is what we've held up before God, and that actually brings a debt, not credit. And what's even worse than that is God will come calling for payment of that debt one day, maybe today. We owe God more than we could ever pay for our sin. We're not blank slates or neutral parties or anything else. We're sinners. And on the basis of believing, God then takes the righteousness of Christ and he accounts that into your line even though you're not righteous, even though it wasn't your money, your righteousness. And all of that is summarized in the statement, Abraham believed in, in the Lord. He believed him as a child believes in a mother's arms who holds it. He believed in him as a climber trusts in the ropes that, that hold him dangling over a sheer rock wall. He, he believed in him as a diver does his oxygen tank a hundred feet below the surface. I mean, God means, God's means by which we can be right with Him is faith alone. He that believes is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already. Why? Because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, and this is the condemnation. The deciding factor of whether you'll be right with God 
is whether you will put your trust in him and his words. It's not a casual trust. It's a, a faith that when it stands before the scrutiny of God and his evaluation, it, it will be determined as, as sure. And Abraham believed before any results. He was childless, and that's why he's told not to fear. And Abraham believed against his current circumstances. He, he has none. He's got Eliezer, and that's why God promised, reminded him that he was the one who promised. And Abraham believed in spite of his inability. He had a dead body, and Sarah had a dead womb. And that's why he's pointed to creation, the stars. And Abraham believed beyond what seemed possible. That's why he was asked to number the stars of heaven. And Abraham, and God declared his relationship with Abraham was right based upon that complete trust. And that was the basis alone. Do you trust Christ like that? I hope so. I'm afraid a lot of people, at least the ones that I've talked to, maybe you this morning, I think a lot of people think that salvation is a lot like the, the story that Dr. Hughes told. Since an old story, but a, a frog fell in a pail of milk, and though he tried every conceivable way to jump out of the pail, he failed. The sides were too high, and because he was floating in the milk, he couldn't get any leverage in order to leap. So he did the only thing that he could do. He paddled and paddled and he paddled some more. And voila, his paddling had churned a pad of butter from which he was able to launch himself to freedom. That's many people's method of salvation in a nutshell, isn't it? I'm in deep, <laughs> and so I'm just going to keep on paddling. I'm going to keep on working, going to keep on doing the best that I can, and I'll make it in the end. My dear friend, if that's you, your best and your butter is not good enough for God. All of your works, all of your striving, all of your effort is going to melt away light of God's holiness and you don't need to paddle harder you are in that bucket floating in that milk what you need to do is roll over on your back and look up and whenever you do you're going to see that there's a hand there that's willing to reach down into that pail and pluck you up out of the milk by his own mighty hand and even better than that with the kiss of his spirit, he's going to turn you from a frog into a prince. <laughs> You're joint heirs with Jesus Christ if you will but believe. Do you believe? Like Abraham believed? Like Paul says is the basis of salvation? You say, I, I don't know. Well, let me ask you what do you think of his promises? Do you question like Abraham did in the beginning? Okay, you can still have faith and do that. Do you remain there? Do you remain in that kind of doubt? If so, you're not there yet. Or do you have confidence in God to the point that you take Him at His word, the promise that He, that he makes about His Son, 
that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life, is your trust in God and what he promised, and you say, yes, it is, then that is the basis of how you get into relationship with him, and that faith is what leads him to declare you right. And if not, you have no basis for a relationship with God because without faith it's impossible to please the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a fitting illustration. We are frogs, and we're in the pale deep. And I am so thankful, Lord, that in my paddling and flailing around in the milk, you rolled me over on my back where I could only look up and see you. And someone told me about the Lord Jesus Christ who paid for all of my sin, that if I would just trust him and him alone, that he would reach down and pluck me out of the miry clay and put my feet on a solid rock. And I am so thankful, Lord, that you did that for me. And I'm so thankful you'll do that for anybody who will call upon your name today. And I pray that they would. And I also pray, Father, for us as Christians, those who have believed, if we find ourselves in circumstances that seem to contradict your promise, we wouldn't fear, we'd have faith. And if you need to, Lord, take us out into the, into the night sky and, and point us to your ability and our inability to even grasp what you've created. That We might be brought back to full faith and trust in you. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your great grace to us. In Jesus Christ, in his name we pray, amen.